All right, good morning. As a church, we're making our way through uh, Luke's Gospel. This is a, a biography of Jesus written by a man named Luke. There's four of them in the New Testament in the Bible. And we are actually getting close to the end. In fact, we are, just last week, we started on uh, the last week of Jesus' life. The last week of Jesus' life, uh, what we saw on that Sunday uh, was Jesus entering the city of Jerusalem in a parade. And as he uh, rides on a donkey into the city, the crowds throng around him and they're shouting and singing a song from the Old Testament, Psalm 118. And they're, they're declaring that Jesus is this long-awaited king, this king that God would send to his people to bring them peace. But in the midst of all that singing and shouting, Jesus, oddly enough, is weeping. Jesus is weeping because he knows. He knows that even though they're accepting him now... And rejoicing over him now, in just a few days' time, they will reject him. They will, they will turn on them. And he's not weeping for himself. He's not sad for himself. He's sad for them. He's weeping because their only hope is right in front of them and they're missing it. They won't see it. They're missing... They're missing the true king right in front of them. And then we watch Jesus go into the city, probably on Monday, so the second day, and he creates quite a ruckus. He, uh, he clears out the temple, because what had happened is that the religious leaders, the, the leaders of the people, had set up a market in the temple. And so they were benefiting themselves. It was a market that benefited them but kept others from being able to worship. So they had taken the temple, this place where people could meet with God, and they had, they had abused it and they'd misused it and turned it into a place that only benefited them. And that made Jesus angry. And so he clears them out of the temple. And so he shows himself not only to be the true king, but also the true priest, the one who truly brings people to God. And that brings us to day three, Tuesday of the last week of Jesus' life. We're going to start reading in Luke chapter 20, in verse 1. One day, as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things, or who is it that gave you this authority? He answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was it the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, Well, if we say from heaven, he'll say, Why didn't you believe him? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. So they answered that they didn't know where it came from. And Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And he began to tell uh, tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. 
When the time came, he sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third. This one also they wounded and cast out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Let's kill him, so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When they heard this, they said, Surely not! But he looked directly at them and said, What then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. The scribes and the chief priest sought to lay hands on him at that very hour, for they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But... They feared the people. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Let's ask Him to write its eternal truths upon our hearts. Let's pray. Father, as we uh, listen to these words of Jesus, I pray just that, that You would write them on our hearts. God, that You would get our attention, that we would not be like the people that Jesus is speaking to, hearing but not understanding. Would you open our eyes and open our hearts that we may be transformed. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Are you familiar with the term evasive maneuvers? Uh, if you're military, you probably have heard that. Or if you like war movies and stuff, uh, it's you know when pl- planes do it, uh, ships can do it, cars can do it, right? Uh, if somebody comes to a dramatic, a sudden stop right in front of you, you you do evasive maneuvers, right? Hopefully, you you hit your brakes and you try to steer uh, away from the car in front of you. Uh, and people do it too. In a manner of speaking, that's what the religious leaders are doing with Jesus. They've met a threat. Uh, and so they are maneuvering, trying to figure out what exactly they're going to do with Jesus. You see, He's challenged their authority. Uh, he's gone into the temple and He's hit them in their pocketbook. And so Jesus has threatened uh, the authority of these men... But they won't publicly move against Him. Because they're also afraid. They're afraid of the crowds. They're afraid of the people. And so they like their status way too much to endanger it. And so what they instead decide to do is try to trap Jesus. Over the next couple of days, as Jesus is teaching in the temple, they try to get Jesus to... uh, incriminate himself, ask him some questions, try to get him to trap himself uh, so that they don't have to do it 
They want Jesus to do their dirty work for them. And the beautiful thing about Jesus is, uh, as soon as they try to spring the trap on Him, He just flips it around and springs it on them. Every time they try to trap Jesus, they find themselves trapped by Jesus. Now, uh, here's, here's why all of that matters to us. You see, I think, uh, I think we're fine with Jesus as long as He says those comforting things that we like. Right? We're, we're okay with Jesus as Savior. When Jesus says things like, I've come to seek and to save the lost, or uh, I, I haven't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance, or when He, when he lifts up the underdog and He challenges the powerful, we like that Jesus. We say, Amen to that Jesus. Thank you. But what we don't like... And what we're often unwilling to see is that in order for Jesus to save us, He must also confront us. He must also challenge us. In a manner of speaking, He has to kind of hit us where it hurts. You see, we're kind of in danger, not kind of, we are in danger of doing what these religious leaders do. We love to crown things. We love to enthrone people and causes and allow them to rule over our lives. Just like these religious leaders were allowing religion, but also their love of of public favor, their position, their status. They were allowing that to rule over their lives. And so when Jesus confronts that... They don't want anything to do with it, right? They, they have to push back. We allow these little gods to rule over our lives and Jesus knows that that's not life. It's death. It's not freedom to have as many gods as you like. It's actually slavery. And so Jesus confronts those things. He challenges those things. And when he does that, we often respond much like a child when you take away his iPad. Or a teenage girl when you take away her phone. Right? Threats and murder. Not my little angel. What do you think she says in that face? Like, what do you think that face means? Right? You are in her way. And you must be removed. Right? That's what that high-pitched scream is all about. You have positioned yourself between your child and eternal happiness. You are a threat that must be removed. Now here's the really beautiful thing and the really infuriating thing about Jesus. He doesn't move. He does not bow himself to my whims. He does not apologize. And what that means is that if you want Jesus, you can't just have the warm, fuzzy Jesus. If you want Jesus, you also you must embrace the whole Jesus. You must embrace the Jesus who unapologetically goes after your heart, which is exactly which is what we see him doing in this passage. Let's just see how it plays out. First, this passage shows us uh, our stubborn sinfulness. Second, it also shows us God's patience. 
And that forces us to this question of what we do with the cornerstone. So we're going to see our stubborn sinfulness, God's patience, and then what do we do with the cornerstone? So, our stubborn sinfulness. Jesus is back in the temple. Uh, This is where he actually spends most of this last week. And he's teaching people and he's telling them good news about himself. And then here come the party poopers. The chief priests, the scribes, the elders. Uh, These three groups of people would have made up what was called the Sanhedrin. The religious ruling class. Uh, They were responsible for religious and civil life. Uh, They were the respected authorities, pastors, Bible teachers, etc. And so they come up to Jesus and they say, Hey, who who gave you the right to do what you're doing? Who do you think you are? They question Jesus' authority. After all, he's just a blue-collar guy from Galilee. He has no official credentials. He, de- he doesn't have a degree from any seminary. Uh, nobody, nobody gave him, like he hasn't earned this spot. Uh, and so they challenge him. They challenge his authority. They basically say, who do you think you are? Cleaning the temple out, coming into the city on a donkey, letting people praise you as king. What, what gives you the right? Now, in a sense, those are actually good questions. In fact, as religious leaders, those are questions they should be asking. In fact, those are questions that each one of us also needs to ask. Anytime someone in your life makes a truth claim, you need to ask, where do you get that from? Right? We, we live by assumptions and assertions all the time. Blind assertions. People, people say things all the time that have no grounding in truth. And so whenever someone in our lives uh, makes, a, makes a truth claim, makes an assertion about something that is inevitably true, we need to ask, where are you getting that from? So, for instance, because this is a hot-button issue and will be for probably years to come, when our culture says things about sexual identity and sexual ethics... We don't just need to accept what is said as fact. We need to ask the question, where do you get that from? Why is that true? And what is your authority? And that applies to young and old as well. We can both live, we can both live blindly by assumptions and not ask the important question. So these guys are asking the right question. What gives you the right? Who, whose authority are you operating under? So they're asking the right question. The questions are good, but their hearts are not. What they want to do is expose Jesus' lack of authority so that the crowds will lose respect and walk away. But Jesus turns the question around on them. And I, I love Jesus' style, right? I mean, he he could have just directly answered it, right? When they said, whose authority are you working under? He could have said, well, I mean, I'm the eternal Son of God who became flesh in the womb of the Virgin Mary. Duh. But he doesn't do that, right? Because he knows that even if he said that, it wouldn't matter to them. 
And so what he does is he turns the question back on them. And he's not, he's not evading their question. He's actually a, he's, he's a master at getting to the heart. And so what he's doing with this counter question is he's, he's, putting, he's putting John back up. Now we met John at the very beginning of the Gospel of Luke. John was a prophet who spoke about Jesus as the Messiah. And so what Jesus is saying basically is, if you can answer the John question, then you'll answer your own question. If, you'll answer, if, you, if you can answer the question about where John's authority came from, is, did John come from God? Was he sent by God, or did he come for, of his own uh, of his own will? Did he did he come from God, or did he come from man? And if you answer that question, you got me covered, because John pointed to me. So Jesus is turning it back on them, and here's and here's why he's doing that. Because this is where their hearts are exposed. They are unwilling to answer the question. Jesus, Jesus gives them two options, and they don't like either one of them. Now, the one that they believe, because they didn't like John, and they don't like Jesus, is that John was just a man. That John, that John came from man, that he didn't come from God. Right? That's, what, that's what they actually believe. But they're unwilling to be honest about it. Because they fear the crowd. Because the people believe that John was a prophet. And so they're, they're unwilling to say from God, because that would give Jesus exactly what they don't want to give Him. But they're also unwilling to be true about what they believe, because they're afraid of the people. And so what they do instead is they give the perfectly political no comment. Right? We don't know. And so Jesus says, well then I'm not going to tell you where... I'm not going to answer your question either. And so, Jesus exposes the the stubbornness of their own sin. He exposes the stubbornness of their own hearts by forcing them to choose. Uh, and And instead of choosing, they just to choose... Instead of choosing one of those options, they just lie. And so they're really not that religious at all. They're a bunch of lying hypocrites. He also illustrates this a little bit further in the next parable that he tells, and that's also where we see God's patience. Jesus tells a parable about a a landlord who owns a vineyard and is moved far away. And this is not an uncommon situation for someone to own property and live somewhere else. And so they they pay, uh, they they lease their property out to someone else to take care of. And that's exactly what this landlord does. He leases his vineyard out to tenant farmers who would be expected to work the vineyard uh, and then return uh, a profit or some of the produce to the owner. And so that's exactly uh, what... Jesus sets up here. The master, uh, the master, the, the landlord of the vineyard, the master of the vineyard sends a servant to go collect, uh, to go collect what is rightfully his. But when the servant gets there, the tenants beat him and send him away empty-handed. And so, a second time, a servant comes. And then a third time. And each time the violence increases. Uh, the tenant farmers uh, treating the servants shamefully, beating them, wounding them, sending them away empty-handed. Uh, 
And so then the master does something completely unexpected. And something that probably to our minds and to the people who are listening to Jesus seems somewhat naive and maybe, if we're really honest, a little bit idiotic. These guys have done this to your servants three times and you're going to do what? I'm going to send them my son. The only son whom I love. It's exactly what he does. The owner says, I'll send my beloved son, in verse 13. And the greedy tenants see their opportunity. They say, if we kill this one, then the the vineyard will be ours. It will belong to us. And so that's exactly what they do. Now, there's the story. Here's its meaning. Jesus is, like I said, He's a master at getting to the heart. What Jesus is telling us about is the relationship between God and ourselves. That God has constantly sent His messengers and constantly they are rejected. And that does tell us how stubborn and blind we are, right? We think we own the vineyard. We constantly reject the master's messengers. This is the story of the Old Testament prophets in a nutshell. God repeatedly sent His messengers to Israel and they repeatedly mocked and rejected and mistreated them. And then finally, the Master sends His own Son. And instead of humbly listening to Him, He is thrown out and killed. Now this story says, yes, it talks to us about our own stubborn blindness, but really it tells us a lot about God's long-suffering patience. God is not naive. He is certainly not dull or stupid. We wouldn't even begin to use that word of Him. What looks like recklessness is actually God's mercy in constant patience. Not once Not twice, not even three times. God repeatedly reaches out to His people. And repeatedly they reject the offer. And so then in the patience and plan of God, He sends His beloved Son. The only Son that He loves. right? The Son of of, uh, special status. In the story, in the parable, uh, that would be the only son. If this son is gone then, and the master dies, then all the inheritance goes to the, the tenants. In this case, of course, we're talking about Jesus. But finally in the son, God holds out his welcoming hand to stubborn sinners, giving them every opportunity to repent. Which then, so, so we have our stubbornness, we have God, God's patience. What do we do with the cornerstone? We see Jesus tells us that the offer isn't on the table forever. Jesus says, what will that master do once they kill the son? What will that owner do? Well, he'll kill the tenants and then give the vineyard to others. And you can tell that Jesus touches a nerve. Because as soon as the people hear Him say that, they go, Surely not. God forbid. He would never act like that. They know exactly what He's saying. 
that God is going to remove Israel from their privileged position and open the doors wide to every Jew and Gentile who would respond to the Son. But to those who reject the Son, they will face the Master's judgment. Now, we don't like that. We don't want to believe that God would act in that way. But that's exactly what He says here. We, in fact, Jesus, Jesus goes on to make His point. He goes back to that song that they were singing about Him two days before, Psalm 118. And He quotes a different part of it. And He talks about this stone that was rejected. This stone that was rejected by others but is exalted by God and made the cornerstone. And the, the cornerstone was a, the, the foundation stone. It was the first one you laid that set their trajectory for the rest of the building. And in the psalm, it's the king who is rejected by others, but then is exalted by God. And the nation is rejected by others, but is exalted by God. And here Jesus says... I'm the one who's going to be rejected. And I'm the one who's going to be exalted. You're going to see this story play out in just a few days. The stone that will be rejected is me. And the ones who do the rejecting is you. But my rejection and death is not the end. In fact, it's really only the beginning. Because God is going to take me and place me as the cornerstone for what He is building. And so Jesus forces the issue. What will you do with the cornerstone? Will you build your life on the cornerstone? Will you be a part of what God is building through Jesus? Or as Jesus says, will you fall on that stone? You know what happens to a a coffee mug when you drop it on a big rock? It breaks. You know what happens to that same coffee mug if you drop the big rock on it? It still breaks. Right? No uh, no, No matter how you come at the stone, the stone wins. And so the question is, what will you do with the stone? God's plan and purpose are rooted in Him. He is not moving. He is not going anywhere. Even though He will be rejected by men, He will be exalted by God, and God is going to build His kingdom, is building His kingdom on the stone. And so you have to decide, will you trust the stone? Or will you try to win a fight with the stone? And Jesus tells you what's going to happen. If you try that second option, you'll be broken to pieces. What will you do with a beloved son? God has sent the son whom he loves. Will you reject him? Or will you listen to him and trust him? Let's pray. Father, I pray that we would not be obstinate. 
God, that You would overcome our stubbornness, our deafness, our blindness. That we would recognize You, Lord Jesus, as the cornerstone, rejected yet exalted. And that we would rest on You, that we would trust in You that we would not oppose You as the religious leaders did, as many unbelieving Jews did in Jesus' day. But we would be those who forsake all other trusts and trust in You and in You alone. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand.